Hey, good morning. Once a month, we offer our Discover Vero Christian Church class for folks who've been visiting or maybe are looking for a church family, and that was this past Sunday. We offered that, we offered that after each of the three services. We, did, we had 10 decisions that were made to come on in and be a part of the church, uh, six of those by baptism and four by transfer. And so the, the names of those folks are Ron and Cheryl Bassant. They were in the early service. Dennis Islandfield, Debbie De Dominic, Chaz Blackwell, Kirsten Blackwell, David and Amanda Shu, and Aurora Medina, and Jessica Vallejas. So we're, we, that's a good Sunday, and uh, we praise God for that. We all own that. That's part of Team Jesus, because you're a wonderful, warm, and loving congregation that people come, and they feel welcome here, and we really appreciate that, and they, they want to explore how to become a part. So we had uh, three of those baptisms have been done so far. We still have three to do, but I'll show you a brief videos. those three baptisms right now. All right, Cheryl, because of your belief in Jesus Christ and confession of faith in Him, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Good job. Of course, Nate was doing those baptisms. Now the shoes, they have, I think it's nine children. And then another family, the Blackwells here have five children. Now you have families like that coming in. They are looking at your family ministry. They're looking at your children's ministry. And there are good things going on here. Nate, who did the announcements this morning, is doing great work in the family ministry. And we all own that as well. We're, we're all invested in that. So just want to give him a big kudos and the sponsors that work in that ministry. Appreciate that. All right, now to something a little more sober. A couple of weeks ago, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres made this statement. This is just a couple of weeks ago. He says, today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. In 1945, Albert Einstein helped to establish the, atom the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And two years later, they created what's known as the Doomsday Clock. Now, on the Doomsday Clock, midnight represents a global apocalyptic event. And in March of this year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists set that clock at 100 seconds to midnight, 100 seconds to midnight, a big apocalypse. Aren't you glad you came to church today? So we've been in a sermon series entitled Be Prepared, and we're looking at the latter part of First Peter, and last Sunday we were talking about be prepared to meet God. Today we want to talk about be prepared for the end of all things. Be prepared for the end of all things. I'm just going to say four very basic things about preparation for the end. Number one is be prepared with a sense of time, a sense of time. First Peter 4, 7, Peter writes, the end of all things is near, is near. Now, what exactly does he mean by that? The end of all things is near. In what century did Peter write these words? Yeah, that would be the first century. In what century are we reading these words? The 21st century. 
So Peter says in the first century, the end of all things is near, but here we are 2,000 years later and the end has not come. What's the deal? Even this clock, this doomsday clock, runs a little bit slow. Now back in 1947, when they first established it, the, the time was set at seven minutes to midnight. And it's taken all of these years now to progress to 100 seconds to midnight. And sometimes this clock runs backwards. If the scientists think that things are going particularly well, they will add some time back onto the clock. But it kind of reminds me of the parent who's trying to discipline their child, and they say, little Johnny, you better do what I said. I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. You know, they're never going to get there. So, but Peter's not the only one to give this impression. And Paul says the same thing, Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. James writes in James 5, 8, the coming of the Lord is near. John writes in 1 John 2, it is the last hour. Apparently, as far as I can tell, what they're talking about is we are in the last days. We're in the final stage of time. Humanity's already lived through the first epoch of time, the messianic age that came to a conclusion with Jesus Christ first coming. Now we're in this second age that will conclude with Jesus' second coming. Linsky writes, R.H. Linsky, the commentator, since Christ's first coming, there is nothing more to expect except his second coming to judgment, and this may occur at any time. And remember that God reckons time differently than we do. St. Peter, different letter, 2 Peter 3, he says, A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. <clears throat> so we are to live as if Jesus could return at any time. Sometimes when I meet people for the first time or second time or third time, they eventually find out what I do, that, I, that I'm a preacher. I try to fly under the radar as long as I can. But eventually they unearth the truth. And, and uh, when I do, sometimes the response is that, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll start getting apocalyptic and say, oh, you're a preacher. Don't you think we're living in the last days? Don't you think we're living at the end of times? And I always say, yes. But I kind of believe that for reasons, I think, sometimes that not other people believe that. Some people believe it because of the headlines they're reading of what's going on in China or what's happening with Iraq or Iran or what's going on with Israel and geo geopolitical events. That's not why I believe that we're in the last days. I believe it because of something I read in the Bible. And Peter says we're in the last days. He said that on the day of Pentecost. We're in the last days. We are in the end times. We have been for 2,000 years, but Jesus could come at any time. That doesn't make us less prepared. It makes us more prepared to live ready at all times, at any time. Okay, so that's just establishing a sense of time. Saying four things today about being prepared for the end of all things. Secondly, be prepared with sobriety, as Peter continues, sobriety. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind. Now, the words here in the original language convey the idea of being clear-minded, serious-minded, sober-minded, or just sober, as in the sense of not being drunk. I mean, just three or four verses earlier, Peter says in 4.3, in the past, you wasted too much time doing what those who don't know God like to do. You were in unrestrained immorality and lust, always getting drunk, having wild drinking parties, and carrying on. 
The words here, there's two words for sexual immorality and three words for sobriety in the sense of don't be drunk. The, the thrust seems to be spring break is over. Grow up, be an adult, get your head screwed on right and be sober, sober-minded, serious-minded. Now, I, um, I want to talk for a minute about Major Dick Winters. I'm put his picture up there and do a little trivia here just in case anybody here happens to be able to guess this morning. Who is Major Dick Winters? What was his significance? Anybody happen to know? Yeah, who said that? Yeah, 100, that's right, Raul. Good man. 101st Airborne. He was the leader of Easy Company. Now, Stephen Ambrose, the historian, wrote a book about Easy Company in World War II. The book is entitled Band of Brothers. Very good book. And that was made into a 10-part HBO series that was produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And the series was entitled Band of Brothers. Okay, so true story and Major Dick Winters was their leader. So I recently completed his memoir. I read his memoirs of Dick Winters called Beyond Band of Brothers. Great book for anybody. All teenagers should read this book. It's absolutely inspiring. I didn't know until I read it what a devoted Christian Major Winters was. But that comes out in his memoir. So I'm going to excerpt the book a little bit here, especially in this point and extensively in this message, because I think he is such a good example of what Peter is talking about here, a more modern example of being prepared with sobriety. Now, Dick Winters, he led his troops through a D-Day attack on German artillery, right? So they parachuted in behind enemy lines on D-Day and took out two of the German artillery positions that were shelling the beach on Normandy. So they helped saved countless American troopers' lives. All right, led his troops through a D-Day attack on German artillery, an assault on the French town of Carrington, a bayonet charge on a dike in Holland, the cold of Bastogne and the Battle of the Bulge, and finally to Hitler's eagle's nest in the Bavarian Alps. He did it all as a 20-something recent college graduate, like 23, 24. After paratrooper training in Easy Company, they deployed to the English village of Aldeborn for nine months of preparation preceding the invasion of Normandy. On his first Sunday there, Winters attended a church service and met Mr. and Mrs. Barnes, who billeted him in their home for the entire nine months. While other officers and troops hung out at the village pub, Winters poured over tactical manuals and he planned for D-Day. When his pen pal asked him if it was true that soldiers routinely raise hell while they're on leave, winners responded in no uncertain terms that no matter what others did, his own morals were never off duty. Here's the letter he wrote back to his pen pal, 23 years old. It doesn't mean that everybody raises hell. I didn't, never have, never will while I'm in the army. Why? First and most important, I have my own conscience to answer to. Next, my parents. And then I'm an officer in the U.S. Army. I'm proud of it with the rank and position I hold. I wouldn't think I'm doing anything to bring discredit to my outfit, my paratrooper boots, wings, airborne patch, or the U.S. Army. Good morale within an outfit is usually reflected by good conduct away from it. That sounds like an idealistic high school kid, I know. But that's it. That's how I feel, end quote. 
Very few soldiers attended religious services while overseas, even in the anxious days leading up to the invasion of Normandy. But for winners, going to church, quote, became the bedrock of my character, end quote. He only missed three services in the nine months leaving up uh, that he lived in Outerborn. He said, the way I feel about it, it's a very special privilege to be able to go to church at all. And I don't want to miss a chance. At the small church he attended, Mrs. Barnes played the organ. Mr. Barnes served as a lay preacher and gave the sermon. No 22-minute Steve. Winner shined his boots, donned his best dress uniform, and he came and sat on the front row of the congregation. It was a routine, he says, that calmed and centered him in the midst of the tension and commotion preceding D-Day. He says it was, much, it was naturally much harder to attend church once Easy Company got into the field, but winners always looked for opportunities to go, even when the service was held, quote, in a barn with some cows and horses crunching hay and adding a delightful aroma to the setting, end quote. And Dick Winters also kept his language clean. As Winters' friend Bob Hoffman relates, the major felt so strongly about profanity that he almost derailed HBO's biopic over the issue, the HBO series. He says, when Dick initially viewed the transcript for the miniseries, Band of Brothers, he was offended that Damian Lewis, the actor who portrayed him on film, used excessive profanity throughout the series. Dick immediately wrote a letter to Tom Hanks resigning from the project because he said, quote, I don't want these boys and girls thinking it is acceptable using profanity. You know that is not who I am, end quote. Hanks issued a tepid apology, which means weak. But he claimed it was too late, too late in the production cycle to edit the offensive language. But Dick held firm, and he countered each one of Tom Hanks' points, and he won again, and you won't hear a single word of profanity from Lewis in that series. Did you realize that, Raul? I didn't realize that as I was watching that series, but his character no profanity. Now the other soldiers make up for it. There's plenty of soldier talk in the movie, but not from his character. Now I wanted to relate that to you because of who he is. He's not a, you know, paper shuffling bookish preacher who's talking about these things. This is a true American hero, a leader of men. They still teach the tactics that he used in West Point. He's a man's man, but he was not ashamed to take a stand for the Lord, a man who was sober-minded, serious-minded, had his head on straight. I think that's what Peter is talking about here. Surely those guys in combat lived with a sense that the end of all things was near, could happen at any time. So we're being prepared for the end of all things with this sense of sobriety. Now here's another one, thirdly, is with prayer. Uh, be prepared with prayer. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. We keep coming back to prayer. Peter keeps bringing us back to prayer. The Bible always seems to bring us back to prayer. Now, I know I've been reading to you a little bit, but I want to read to you a little bit more because this is a poem, and uh, hopefully I add a little bit of levity here at this point. But it's about Jake the rancher. Jake the rancher went one day to fix a distant fence. The wind was cold and gusty and the clouds rolled gray and dense. And as he pounded the last staples in and gathered his tools to go, the temperature had fallen, the wind began to blow. And when he finally reached his pickup, he felt a heavy heart. From the sound of that ignition, he knew it would not start. 
So Jake did what most of us would do if we'd been there. He humbly bowed his head and sent aloft a prayer. And as he turned the key for the last time, he softly cursed his luck. And they found him three days later frozen stiff in that old truck. Now, Jake had been around in life and done his share of roaming, but was shocked when he saw heaven because it looked just like Wyoming. Of all the saints in heaven, his favorite was St. Peter. They sat and talked for days on end, and life could not be sweeter. I've always heard, Jake said to Pete, that God will answer prayer. But the one time I asked for help, he just plain wasn't there. Does God answer prayers for some and ignore the prayers of others? That don't seem exactly square. I know all men are brothers. And I ain't trying to act smart. It's just the way I feel. I'm wondering, could you tell me what the heck's the deal? Well, Peter listened patiently. And when old Jake was done, he smiled in recognition and said, so you're the one. That day your truck, it wouldn't start. You sent your prayer flying. You gave us all a hard time with hundreds of us trying. A thousand angels rushed to check the status of your file. But you know, Jake, we hadn't heard from you in quite a long, long while. And though all prayers are answered and God ain't got a quota, he didn't recognize your voice and started a truck in Minnesota. <laughs> Be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a story, and the thrust of it was that we should always be devoted to prayer and never give up, be persistent. Remember that story? It's the story of the widow, this widow woman. And it's just a parable, but there's a judge in the story, and he's an unjust judge. He doesn't care about people, doesn't care about justice, doesn't care about this widow woman, but she's so persistent. She's stalking this judge. She's nagging this judge. And finally, he says, in the story, he says, I don't care about her, and I don't care about justice, but I'm going to give her what she wants, so she'll just leave me alone. And Jesus kind of does a comparison there. And he says, keep on praying. How much more will your Father in heaven, who is just and who does care about you, will answer your prayers and give you what you ask for? So that's the story, and you know, we should keep on praying. But then at the very end of it, he makes a statement that strikes me as a little incongruous. It's almost like there's a disconnect. And the statement is this, Luke 18, 8. After telling that story, he says, But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? If I'd been telling the story, what I would have expected was, how many will he find on the earth who pray? The whole story is about prayer, not faith. But he says, how many will the Son of Man, and of course, this would be the end of all things when Jesus returns, how many will he find who have faith? And there seems to be, he's equating here, there's an equation of faith and prayer. That the idea is, the people of faith are the ones who are going to be praying which makes sense. Because if it's the end of all things, nobody's going to waste time praying if they don't believe there's really a God, you know, trust a God who hears and answers prayer. At the end of all things, the evidence of faith, or one of the evidences, is prayer. That we are people of prayer. Not only people who say, I'll pray for you, but who stop, put a hand on your shoulder, and pray. Who carve out some time every day to go aside into a quiet place and spend time in prayer. That's how we get ready for the end of all things. Now, there's one more. There's one more. As we're preparing for the end of all things, Peter says to love each other deeply. Be prepared to love. 
Most important of all, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Now this is Peter. He'd been with Jesus. Maybe he's thinking of the time when Jesus said, two greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. To love deeply. Love covers a multitude of sins. Whose sins are being covered by love? I think it's the person that we're loving. We overlook, we overlook the idiosyncrasies. We overlook the minor irritations. We love. Somebody has said we like because of, but we love in spite of. We love although. Solomon writes in Proverbs 10, 12, hate starts fights, but love covers all sins. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of being wronged. Now, we don't necessarily forget and sometimes we have to put up boundaries, right? We can put up boundaries that we're not taking advantage of. But it's simply the idea we're not going to try to make somebody pay for what they did to us. We're not going to remember it in that way. R.H. Linsky writes, Love dis dismisses hundreds of sins of weakness and fault and mistake and failings. We bear with each other because we know our own failings. Hate does the opposite. It pries about to discover some sin or some semblance of sin in a brother and then broadcasts it, even exaggerates it, gloats over it. I mean, if somebody's genuinely going in the wrong direction, if we love them, we'll do what we can to try to help them to repent and turn back. James says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Major Dick Winters, you know what's interesting? His best friend in Easy Company was Captain Lewis Nixon. Captain Lewis Nixon. These guys were polar opposites. Uh, Major Winters, a teetotaler, never drank, did not cuss, went to church, man of faith. Lewis Nixon was an alcoholic. He was constantly getting busted in rank because he couldn't stay sober. He was profane. Never went to church, always went out and partied. And yet, Lewis Nixon had as a best friend major winners. Best man at his wedding after the war. Saw him through his alcoholism until he reached sobriety and gave the eulogy at his funeral. Love covers a multitude of sins. Our example in this is, is God. Isn't this the way God has treated us in his love? Has he not overlooked and covered over our sins? Let me read you from C.S. Lewis and the Four Loves, and nobody can say it like C.S. Lewis. God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect us. He creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms at his time after time, for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. 
This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. The end of all things is near. Sober up. Get serious. Pray and love. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, as we close this morning thinking and dwelling on your love for us and how the blood of Christ covers over the multitude of our sins. And we think, Lord, that image of parasites, that we have been like parasites taking advantage of your kindness and your patience, your provision for us, your love toward us, just sucking all of that from you and still living in rebellion and sin, and yet you continue to love us. We are filled with humility. We are filled with gratitude. And we pray today that in our lives, our relationships with our family members and in our spiritual family, the church, that we can reflect, that we can just reflect a little bit of your love for us onto other people in this way. Prepare us, Lord, for the end of all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.